Hey everyone, welcome to another edition of the Out of the Woods Threat Hunting Podcast. This is Scott Poley here with Lee Arkinall. Thanks for joining us, everyone. And this weekly segment features the top five stories that threat hunters need to be thinking about, as well as our thoughts on the subject and hunting strategies. So with that, let's dive into the top five threat hunting headlines for the week of October 16th, 2023. So Lee, I was going to start with uh, an article from SecureList.com, and it's titled "Toddy Cat: Keep Calm and Check Logs." So it's interesting. Anytime you hear "cat" in the name of uh, active groups, it always seems to go back to China. So I think this is also a Chinese-based group, um, and they were identified targeting high-profile groups in Europe and Asia. And some things to note in the article that I thought were interesting uh, things to identify were the loaders initially. They kind of reminded me of DLL side loading, but they weren't DLL side loading. Um, and a couple of the examples, they actually were using a VLC player, um, a common player that's now used within organizations to play any kind of media, but a vulnerable versions basically where they can run uh, a playlist.dat file. Um, with VLC, and that would cause uh, the loader to basically play out and do what it needs to do. Um, and, you know, it's interesting. We talked about DLL siloing in the past and how people will use vulnerable third-party tools, like bring legitimate tools in that are vulnerable and then use those. So I know a lot of tools now pay attention to the versioning of third-party software or software installed. I think that's kind of one of the best ways to address this in some instances, where if you have a good cyber hygiene or have a good idea of what is in your environment, um, spotting these, this type of activity becomes easier, even if they're using software that is known to you, especially if you're keeping your software up to date. Um, so that was one thing that stood out that was interesting. Um, and then one of the other things that they uh, leveraged was um, for execution and, and a form of persistence on system startup, they put their um, malware call in the uh, registry key for uh, the local machine software, Microsoft Windows NT current version SVC host, which basically uh, caused their font cache service um, to load, uh, which was their payload on startup um with basically svc host so it's i haven't seen that persistence specifically and i thought that was interesting uh for them to actually use persistence that way because it's not your typical current version run that we typically see um so that stood out as an interesting artifact as far as actually using svc hosts on system boot for that um and then they also created some uh kind of tailored services in general so another form of persistence is but you know we see services all the time they actually created two different services uh, and they named them, you know, service DLL and service main. Not not a big catch there. Uh, but, you know, that's something to pay attention to as far as, you know, services being created and where they're pointing to. In this case, they're, they're pointing to the same, um, you know, the font cache serve as, as they were mentioning before. And one of the things they did when they got in is they also uh, were trying to exfil data. So they uploaded data to Dropbox and OneDrive. 
so, you know, Dropbox, I think, is easier to spot in most organizations. OneDrive, you know, might be more consistent where people are using OneDrive. So that might be a little harder to spot. Uh, one of the things looking at data there is that typically there's a, some sort of user association there. And if you don't have a user that's an internal user or one that's part of your organization, that might stand out. It's a good way to look at that data and see what that looks like from that perspective. And then one of the things I thought was really interesting, and it made sense as I kind of worked, you know, through uh, the rest of the article, was they stood up a passive UDP backdoor. They didn't seem to really use it, but I was thinking, why would someone set up a UDP backdoor? Because that's really hard if there's any filtering ahead of it to get access to it a lot of times. And this looked like when they compromised some of their networks, they actually had the beachhead on the external uh, facing server or something, um, which they were leveraging to actually move data internally to to exfil out of. So they kind of had to use that beachhead for you know communications in as well as how they moved data out. They basically set up a, uh, a, a firewall rule, and it was obviously a Windows system because it's using uh, NetSH, uh, to open up a UDP port inbound. Um, in this case, it was port 49683, you know, just, you know, random port. I wouldn't, uh, you can look for that, but that's not something I would specifically key off of. But just the fact that they're creating that inbound rule in UDP is just weird because that's a, a hard thing to set up for anything operationally. Like, why would you use that in that way specifically? And one of the things they did with the post exploitation when they got inside was common activities we typically see. They did a lot of uh, discovery um, activity with the net command. Um, a couple ping commands, and um, one of the things they did, they also moved files uh, to like either bat files or uh, PowerShell files to execute remotely to do discovery commands on uh, uh, other hosts within the environment laterally. And they even had some scheduled tasks to do some of the execution of that. So they would basically create a remote scheduled task um, on the remote host to run something essentially and then delete that task. Uh, so just that behavior of spinning up a task and then deleting it uh, is interesting, especially if you're able to compare the time frame of when that occurs. Um, that was interesting. And then uh, one of the things I, I mentioned how they had that like beachhead host so they exfil data through, they actually stood up a temporary share to move all that data with the net share command. Um, and that enabled them to take all the data they collected from all the hosts they did these remote scheduled tasks and activity on, move them all to that beachhead. Then they deleted that network share um, to kind of cover up their tracks, I guess. But, you know, like I said, creating and deleting of things in, in conjunction like that kind of stands out depending on what it is. And then they, you know, move that data out. So those are some of the technical aspects of this article that I thought were really interesting. And obviously they covered some more about some of the specific backdoors um, and and things they were able to do or, or look for, but I wanted to focus more on what are the things you might actually see in logging and execution. So, so yeah, that's kind of what I pulled that I thought was the most important, and it was kind of interesting to see some of those behaviors that I think are definitely identifiable. So what were your thoughts, Lee? So definitely, uh, definitely very good technical article um, covering a lot of aspects of the attack. Some things that um, I noticed um, that you may have mentioned as well. 
Uh, but the, the sheer number of living off the land binaries mm -hmm. um, that exists in this attack is just crazy. Uh, I mean, they got net, they got ping, command, PowerShell, you name it, um, scheduled tasks, like you said. And I did find that very interesting as well. Uh, the scheduled tasks that you mentioned where they created something, they ran it, and then immediately deleted it. Now, what I was thinking about that is, you know, finding scheduled tasks being created and hunting for that is, you know, one aspect of it. Because if you find, if you're hunting for a scheduled task that was created, you're kind of hunting for what information exists or what commands were thrown, what it looked like. Um, and, you know, you're trying to gather information on that. But something that would stick out as well is, like you said, the sheer time difference between the start of that scheduled task being created it running and then deleting is just mm -hmm. something that would stick out completely um i don't know how many people do that if that's a new thing um but uh, that definitely stands out also um there was a lot of powershell execution bypass being used um and i thought you know if you think about um, if you think about how that could be used maliciously, if that's something that just continues to show up um, or something that's outside of the norm of your environment, uh, that would stick out as well. Um, and finally, and I'm trying to figure it out, um, the command prompt, one of the parameters that was used was something I didn't recognize. Um, and it was or sorry, not, no one I can't find it. So it's command slash C, then start slash B. Um, and I was trying to dig to figure out what that is. Because I've seen start before where mm -hmm. uh, the adversary or anyone's just trying to, um, you know, run command to point at something to start it. Uh, sometimes it's nested, sometimes it's not. But then I saw the slash B, which I normally don't see. Um, and then taking a look at the Windows or the Learn Microsoft documentation, it says it starts an application without opening a new command prompt window. Um, so basically, uh, if you will, uh, quiet mode. Um, hmm. so, so it version pop up. quiet mode, yeah. Right. Um, so that's just a, a same the same technique that's been done before. Um, PowerShell's equivalent, I guess, would be the hidden window style. Um, but now, if you take a look at the B stands if for you're looking background. For, for yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, like it's just something interesting, right? Now that now, if you're looking for, uh, now you can look for a bunch of different things, right? A quick uh, scheduled task being created and deleted. You can look for PowerShell. Uh, execution bypass mode being run. And now you can look for command, uh, or if you're not even looking for command executing start, um, you could start looking for start with varying command line parameters. Mm -hmm. um, and that was just something neat, because I, I love the Microsoft documentation. I love seeing something new and trying to dig in and figure out what it's used for, how you can leverage this, uh, and how adversaries can leverage it. But that slash B definitely sticks out um, being the whole background idea. Um, but this was, uh, once again, always a great article. Um, mm -hmm. They have 
code, they have screenshots, they have everything you need to be successful. Um, and um, I was shocked because I will say, as I was reading, as I was reading it, um, you, the first thing I saw was a bunch of files being or executables being created in the same directory. So there was the Acro RD64.exe in Windows Mail, and then there was a DLL that was created. Then in mm -hmm. the common files VLC media, there was an executable, and then there was a DLL. Immediately, I thought, oh, then, you know, that's that's um, that's side loading, uh, which I don't know how many times you've, or sorry, DLL side loading. I don't know how many times uh, you've mentioned that or we've mentioned that on a podcast, but I, I just find it ironic that I can't count how many times we've mentioned it and I can't count how many times we've seen it, which is, um, oh yeah, I, I guess. I guess if if you are listening, if you're a repeat listener, I would bump that technique up uh, to your prioritization list. And it might be hard but, to but build that behavior in some tools, right? So tool specific might make that easier. But if you can do it, I think there's value to at least identifying that kind of activity. Oh, absolutely. And um, I, I'm not gonna. I, I know there's tools that follow event types, and I think that would be the best way to do it is to look at both uh file creation events uh, within short times or even like process create events if you are looking for that executable triggering um, but if you have aggregate if you have a tool that can aggregate that's a, a lot easier it helps mm -hmm. out a lot more um, especially when time frames and stuff uh, but yeah it's definitely easier in some tools than than others cool so what do you got to bring to the table here I got a report from good old uh, the Ukrainian CERT, and they put out an article about uh, features of destructive cyber attacks against Ukraine providers uh, tracking UAC 0165, which is their equivalent of Sandworm APT. So basically, uh, Sandworm was seen attacking at least 11 telecommunication wow communication mm -hmm. communication providers uh within the uh ukraine now i started reading this and i got excited because i was like oh this is something that i could definitely uh, dig into uh, which you can but the first thing i came across was they're talking about a bunch of linux stuff and i was like oh man like okay i'm I think I'm pretty good at Windows, but when it comes to Linux, it's still, uh, you know, I'm still learning. But what was nice is they broke down the um, the attack on how they uh, or what they're seeing. So you saw a script being run or, uh, you know, they say the first step is the scan uh, and they're using the mass scan and they have the configuration mm -hmm. file. Um, and then they... Uh, Find it or displayed an example script. Now it may not be the script that was being used by the adversary, but it shows you how um, how you can use this tool to actually uh, accomplish the mission. And then they describe more about um, you know how they used uh, a, a white cat utility to kind of clear tracks, which um, which I think is neat um, or not neat. That, that's the wrong word. Uh, but finally looking at, um, they're giving Linux directories, which I'm not very um, familiar with, but they're now like, uh, I'm reading this article and it's associating these locations 
and the um, with some technique. So I'm it was a good article to learn off of, especially when they talked about uh, gaining persistence using the cron tab, which uh, you and I both know I learned about um, on a training mission. That was fun. Um, <laughs> but you know now now it's it's something neat to look at um, from a perspective of the Linux version. Now there wasn't a uh, there wasn't a lot that I really grabbed onto, but um, you know while reading this and I didn't want to waste it because it was a very good article. Mm -hmm. um, my first thought was, all right, this is a you know this is a Linux or is targeting Linux. Um, what if I'm in Ukraine, but I'm not a telecommunication provider? Um, maybe I am mostly Windows. And, and of course, uh, we can't ignore it, but Ukraine is going to be probably under attack by the Sandworm team for quite some time until this uh, conflict or war uh, eventually ends. Um, but my thought was, how can I even take a look at this? How can I even use this information um, or even start to look for sandworm to be proactive about it, right? Uh, mm -hmm. So I did what I normally do, uh, straight to the miter tag matrix. You got the groups that you can look into and look at sandworm activity. Um, and this goes for any group or any um, you know adversary that you're thinking about, right? How am I gonna hunt for this? First thing I would always recommend is looking for um, you know, looking for historic artifacts. Um, what what techniques did they use? What behaviors did they use? Now the the report talks about destroying evidence. It talks about scanning. It talks about gaining persistence. It talks about installing a backdoor. You can take these terms and apply them to other uh, tactics, techniques, and sub techniques in the minor tag matrix. Uh, and still be able to be successful. Uh, and that's the great uh, thing about it. And, you know, I, I love it for it. Um, but I would also go to the groups. Take a look at the um, the MITRE navigator that they have built in, that it shows the historic uh, activity from these, uh, from these adversaries and how you can focus on it. Um, of course, prioritize what you have, like take a look at what, um, what logs, lo what log sources do you have? What event types do you currently have? Uh, if you have, you know, only a few, maybe look to start ingesting more. Uh, look at other log sources. Like if you're looking for process create, if you're looking for file creation, if you have an EDR, maybe you got to, you know, balance this hunting between a sim and an EDR because you're only piping some stuff, um, which is, you know, common because why would you duplicate everything in uh, the tools? But then come to the the minor tag navigator and really start looking at all right well what have they done before uh, because do you really want to waste time looking for uh, a tactic or a technique that they haven't used um, in the past uh, because I know we say it a lot but adversaries are comfortable with what works they're comfortable with what they know um, and changing behaviors is the goal is if we can folk or if we can force them to be uncomfortable, to try a technique or a TTP or a behavior that they're not comfortable with, then we can probably, or hopefully, force them to make a mistake. And at that point, um, we, we could start pushing back on the attack or possibly stopping it altogether. Uh, but really, that was like, I, I like this article because one, 
uh, like I said, it, it introduced me to some um, logs or uh, directories and information from a Linux perspective that I could still loosely tie together. Um, and I'm no expert, but reading it, once again, it got me to that point of like, well, okay, well, this is great. What happens if they get into a Windows environment? What happens if they get into an enterprise environment that they're targeting? What can we do from there? Um, but yeah, it, it was a great article. Uh, what, what were your thoughts? So I always love the Ukrainian search stuff. Uh, obviously, if you ever go there, you have to use Google Translate or some sort of in-browser translate um, because it's not in English if that's your native language. Uh, but it's always a great resource because obviously they're dealing with real conflict. And a lot of times when people worry about you know cyber attacks other than ransomware, um, they're kind of like, we're hoping to catch the guys, but we don't know what they're going to do. Like every single one of the attacks that you see in the Ukrainian cert has the impact, has the the end goal typically associated with it. So you can see like attack from start to finish when they're successful, which is very insightful. Um, but one of the things that was interesting for this, obviously when they did the mass scan, they're looking for basic services for remote access, RDP, SSH, you know, and I was thinking about, well, gosh, even if they were able to, you know, discover those services, they have to have credentials to get in. And usually, you know, a lot of adversaries get credentials from previously dumped credentials or social engineering or whatever. But I was thinking to myself as you were talking, uh, you know, what's the best defense for that? And it's like you could just change your password at that point in time. You know, the second you change your password, that password is, I would say, secure as long as you're following good practices. Um for at least an extended period of time from that point in time, right? So if you're like, oh man, we're, you know, something bad happened and we know we're gonna be a target. If you were to roll your passwords and, and that wasn't as, like, a huge challenge necessarily, you would be protected for a week to a month or whatever for that type of attack at least, right? So, you know, that was kind of like, how can you gain comfort and how can you gain control of that situation? Um, and, you know, with confidence, I thought that was kind of an interesting thought that just came to me. Um, but the other thing, you know, one of the things they targeted was not just Linux systems, but, you know, a lot of Linux runs on network devices um, sometimes. So they were kind of leveraging some of the similar techniques. And one of the things I, I saw was they were putting bash, which is kind of like your command shell, right, that you normally would get. Um, they were placing it in the bin false and the bin no login. Um, they were placing that binary or those two binaries with bash so that when you were supposed to be able to get, let's say you try to log in and you don't have bash configured for your profile, you have a no login. So you're like, oh, sorry, you can't log in. This is all you can do, or you can't, you know, whatever. Now, instead of not being able to log in, you've basically enabled that command script interpreter. Um, and so some things to look for that is, uh, sometimes you can look at timestamps of files, right? Um, especially those two specific, or I mean, obviously if you compare the hash of bash with those, I mean, that would be a very, a, a, a very key um, example of that. Uh, so, you know, those are some ways to kind of look for that. Um, same thing, they actually replaced the cron binary, which I thought was super interesting. It wasn't just like putting things in the cron job to run. They replaced it with what they wanted to run. Just so, you know, cron is one of those things that the system will check to run essentially, but it's going to run whatever that binary is that manages cron. They just kind of replaced it. Uh, another thing to do there is looking at timestamp modifications or not, you know, 
what the timestamp would be and what would be expected. Um, and then obviously if people are trying to modify timestamps, they didn't mention that where they did like time stopping techniques. Uh, but that's, if I was trying to be undetected, um, which based on the end of their like report on the attack, I, they didn't seem like they were worried about that because a lot of destructive stuff at the end. Um, but it's something else. If you're trying to like lay in wait that you'd be doing a lot of time stomping with those techniques. Um, and what was really interesting to me was the significant use of um, uh, RM-RF, which is basically remove, and then the uh, R argument is recursive and the F is force. And they targeted like every single like root directory, boot, Etsy, mount, home, temp. Um, and it's basically like, they're just trying to like doing a mass delete where they could, right? Um, but then they followed up with a DD, which is basically a bit for bit write, and they um, referenced the dev zero um, drive. It basically says, hey, we're gonna write zeros to everything. Um, and so it was interesting to do a delete, which obviously when you do a delete, files are recoverable, but you significantly impact the system. And then you do a zero write to everything. Well, now you are essentially, um, you know, destroying the data that underlies on the disk. And I was curious if that actually would work though, because if you're doing a remove on all the core root directories, I figured you would delete the DD utility. So I didn't know if that was actually successful or not. Um, and so I only bring that up because a lot of times when attacks are being formulated, they kind of put a bunch of capabilities together like, oh, we need to make sure to destroy things. We'll do this, do this, do this. And the batting order matters. And sometimes that's a miss. Um, and why you do both those doesn't make sense. And then I've actually just finished uh, publishing a, a hunt pack where Russia uses DD to destroy something else. And it's interesting to see that reoccur and especially when I don't think it's actually feasible in the way they use it here. Um, but it just shows that how those techniques, when you talk about behaviors you know, earlier, if you can make them change their behaviors, you know, whatever, um, that was an example where that was a reoccurring behavior for the same exact groups doing the same exact thing, except for this time, I felt like it was kind of forced together and wasn't, uh, didn't act as intended there. So that was just interesting to me looking from the technical side. Um, but yeah, so I, I think it's great to keep up on this kind of stuff because like I said, it's, it's real world, right? It's not hypothetical. It's not tabletop. It's, you know, this is, they got in with a purpose, did what they wanted to do, um, achieved mission success or whatever that looks like. And then that was it. So, yeah. So question, now that you bring up the RM, right? Um, what, mm -hmm. you know, what's the joke when you mess with people that don't, mm -hmm. um, like me? don't really use Linux a lot, but you say, oh yeah, run rm-rf star, right? Um, right? Was the reason they didn't do that and that will delete everything. Um, is that the reason was because they were they had those follow up? Um, oh, you're right. I think DD is in bin or sbin. I didn't, I didn't think about that. I was thinking it'd be in Etsy, but yeah, it might be in bin or sbin, um, which would preserve it. So you're right there, yeah. I was just curious because it, it, honestly, if I wanted to destroy something, I would have done the RM-RF star. Um, right. No, you're right. You're absolutely right. I mean, that, and that's the thing is, you know, I'm glad you kind of even brought that up and you kind of proved me wrong because you, you got to think people are, are coming up with these attacks, right? And when you understand how something works, 
you bring an excellent point. If you wanted to delete everything, you would do the star. And he had to think, well, why didn't they? And then, you know, I think we answered that question with the follow-up activity. But if we didn't have that follow-up activity, you had to think, is it because they didn't know? Is it because there's something we missed? You know, there's all these questions that really may, if you're able to answer them, provide a lot of value um, for understanding the attack, preventing future attacks, whatever. But, you know, we're not really addressing the technical piece of it anymore. We're kind of going into what is the adversary trying to do? How does the adversary think about it? What are the adversary's skill sets that, you know, when you understand those things, I think it, you stand a better chance when you, uh, you know, go to toe to toe with them, essentially. Yeah, no, that, that was just something I observed because I, I found that ironic. Um, you know, maybe, maybe they did, maybe they wouldn't, they still wanted access. I, I don't know. Um, but yeah. No, you're right. I mean, I didn't think of where DD was, but now that I, I remember those um, directories. I, I think they didn't step on their toes on this one. They actually did it the correct way. So, sorry, cool. I could be wrong. I learned okay, something about <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes it takes someone who doesn't know really know what they're talking about. Just the right really question. Really ask a serious question. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So what's so, next? Yeah, so, you know, it's it's kind of a good follow-up on your article, and obviously not as much technical to it, but uh, there's a Reuters um, article, and it's the hackers hit aid groups responding to Israel and Gaza crisis. And it's same thought process when it comes to the Russia-Ukraine thing. Anything involved in that, and especially in our generation nowadays, whatever you want to call it, there's going to be a cyber element. Bit, like doesn't matter how big or small the world event is, but geopolitical things are going to cause cyber activity, um, without a doubt. Now, this is an example where they were trying to hit different targets um, in Israel or people that were trying to provide support to Israel, and they didn't have the right capability. They're relying on denial of service types of attacks. They weren't good enough or didn't have the bandwidth enough to actually do anything um, to provide impact. But it just goes to show um, if you have more of a nation-driven thing, you might suspect more successful impact. If you have more of the activist um, ad hoc approach, you, you wouldn't expect as much success off the rip potentially, but um, that doesn't mean that you shouldn't uh, care it's just really making that strong tie to world events matter when it comes to cyber. It's almost like sometimes people look at cyber as if it's its own domain within it, you know, off by itself. And they're, they're directly integrated. You know, that's why money drives cyber events. That's why world events drive cyber events. You know, there's the two biggest, you know, things um, that are behind the motivations of a lot of cyber activity. It's not really curiosity anymore, which is, you know, back in the day when, People didn't know how to use computers, so people that could were like, I wonder what I could do. So, um, yeah, so it's just really article kind of hitting on that. Um, and I would expect as things escalate, and especially there's talk of like, you know, how is Iran going to play into some of this? We may see more cyber capabilities come to play that won't be necessarily kinetic warlike strikes, but maybe helping one side or the other without having to necessarily put, you know, munitions or people on the ground. Um, so I would expect that. So, you know, it's something for people to keep an eye on and, you know, learn from, you know, these types of incidents. You, you bring up a very, very good point about, uh, 
how this world event can not only affect a lot of things. I mean, they're not to downplay the civilian uh, death mm-hmm. toll on both sides. Um, but the whole idea of, and I was just listening to the Malicious Life podcast, and they were talking about um, China and how they introduced the term unrestricted warfare. Um, and they mentioned that exact idea of that if you are in a cyber war or if you are attacking someone and targeting someone, you can pull in um, your allies. And if they have a awesome or if they have a good cyber security um, or talent or, ha- you know, talented hackers, you have your nation state run uh, everything, you name it, mm-hmm. how you they can play a part and still cause havoc destruction without any guns being fired or any missiles or bombs being dropped uh and that's kind of what i was thinking about as i was reading this especially when you know i mean targeting hospitals and aid groups um and i'm going to say this again either side is just Right. The worst form of hacking and cyber attacks that you can do. Because, I mean. It's like an attack on humanity. (laughs) Right. Right. Like those doctors are there and nurses and health workers. They're there to help save lives. Um, And those aid groups are, you know, trying to help bring feed or food and normalcy and water, you know to those victims so, um, and just targeting them and slowing them down is just I mean back in the day what we used to paint uh, giant crosses on top of hospitals so that as the you know in World War II as the Germans or you know as we were flying over countries and bombing them you know it was like don't attack the hospitals right Right. and that's just right. gone by the wayside uh, which is I don't know, it kind of brings out the worst in humanity, right? Mm-hmm. Kind of. Well, it's like the internet and social media. Like you can say what you want because there's no repercussions <laughs> yeah. or who you are. Like cyber attacks are the same way. Like I can be really bad, and it doesn't really mean people know I'm a bad person, and so I can get away with it. You know? Yeah. Right, and it's not like you're pulling a trigger. It's not like you're yeah. flying a plane yeah. to draw a bomb. All you're doing is pushing a button, and all mm-hmm. of a sudden, boom! Ransomware is just, I don't know. Yeah. We'll stop there. That's a sad, <laughs> sad article. Thanks, Polly. Yeah, no, you're welcome. Um, so we'll just switch topics. You can take the next. So <laughs> this is, a, um, ironically, the title doesn't um, work into the, that same topic we we're just talking about. Uh, but the Elastic Security Labs um, have created, published an article named "Disclosing the Blood Alchemy Backdoor." Uh, they do some great. Uh, malware analysis and documentation on uh, pieces of malware and some attacks. And basically, this blood alchemy is a new backdoor that's uh, they recognize is still in active development. It abuses legitimate binaries for loading, and it has multiple running modes, persistence mechanisms, and communication options. Now, this goes back to um, this actually tied into my uh, UA or the Ukraine cert article because one of the command lines that they ran was the uh, command.exe slash C uh, and then they nested some commands but start was involved again. 
now this time no parameters were used just you know executing uh, an executable that was dropped in the windows directory now um, but it's still seeing two separate things in the same day that are being used it kind of i mean it automatically draws attention right is this a new um technique or behavior that's um becoming more common uh, is that something that we need to be uh focused on um you know reevaluate are we just looking for command or you know whatever the case may be um but you see it more and more um it, it's just interesting right it just catches your eye then i i liked and there's no props to whoever created this but the thought process that they put into um this backdoor running and achieving its goals i thought was impressive so right. it's not like a hard-coded i'm gonna drop in the you know windows startup folder or the windows startup registry key it has like logic that's built in that for persistence it's based on the current privilege level that is used so it can be either program files program files x86 app data or local data or local app data um and the fact that it not only does it have that type of logic but it also has multiple methods so it could be a service it could be a register key it could be a scheduled task it could abuse uh com interfaces yeah it just going through here normally when i read these you know i kind of pop into my head of oh that backdoor used uh technique 1059.001 or you know command and scripting interpreter for powershell and then like they have one tactic technique or procedure for one uh behavior right like it's like a almost a one-to-one -one. this one you're like man there's four different ways or four different locations that it gains persistence oh man there's four different ways that they gain persistence so you know it it looks like a backdoor that could be very nasty simply because of its multiple methods of achieving each goal um definitely you would definitely have to throw more uh like the kitchen sink towards this one uh because if you look for a services and, and you don't see that persistence well maybe it's not just that um and then you know it uses scheduled tasks um and runs at um system level which i would um i always recommend looking for uh, as a hunt just schedule tasks and then a slash ru uh which is the running user or the slash rl which is the running level look for it containing system right that's could be concern it could be something um that is used within your organization but if a new schedule task is created running a system i mean that might be the if it is legitimate in your environment it may just be because that's the easiest way to do it but i would highly recommend diving into any of those because that would be i mean that's suspicious in my mind right why am i running anything as system level because that whatever that does it seems like it would just straight up uh gain persistence gain privilege escalation uh and, and so many other reasons uh, but the article goes on to talk about more of its functionalities it provides a lot of code references, which um, they're not just providing you with like log sources and event logs, but they're providing you with the um, 
the code that's really um, that, that is a part of it, which is really really nice. They do a very thorough um, thorough analysis uh, when they put these articles together. So big shout out to them. Um, but like I said, the the nasty thing about this is the multiple ways that it can gain persistence. The multiple ways that it um, that it achieves its goals could definitely um, send hunters down one road than the other. And I, I'm not that I'm glad something like this came out, but this this really um, it really shows the need for hunting, right? The need for making threat hunting an ongoing process, not just being pigeonholed into we're only looking for persistence through registry keys. We're only looking for persistence through scheduled tasks because that would be basically treating like any of these artifacts like an IOC, right? You say, hey, we have one hash. That means one file. It's malicious. We know it. Let's search for it. So when you're doing binary queries like that or, or performing uh, in a binary way, you're going to get either a one or a zero, right? But if you're looking for many things, if you're looking for anything that you're looking at, uh, you know, we're just going to throw the whole persistence blanket out and say we're looking for all these ways, um, then you can start getting a better idea of what persistence uh, exists in your environment. And then you may be finding things that you didn't know existed, um, or you may be finding things that you didn't know you should be worried about. But once again, another great uh, article from the Elastic Security Team. No, I, I liked your point with the multiple persistence piece because, I mean, they didn't mention it here, but, you know, if you had a scenario where this type of malware is polymorphic, meaning the hash would change, and you discovered it at some point in your environment, and you went off the hash to try to identify it, and you didn't find multiple matches, but then you went off maybe the persistence mechanism, and you found it, but nothing else. Well, if something landed, used this backdoor, only had a certain level of... Uh, privileges, it would do one backdoor mechanism. And then when it laterally moved and maybe move the backdoor to some other system where they had more privileges, it will look very different, right? And so being aware or looking for those common techniques helps you root out all the possibilities. Um, but yeah, this malware is interesting to me because obviously it's leveraging multiple techniques based on a lot of um, like they're kind of baking in what I would think a human would do if they were in the environment and trying to set things up manually, like, oh, this didn't work or this didn't work. They're like already kind of making that decision tree. So it's not, I would call it like a smart malware, right? Um, the other thing that was interesting to me too was I was looking at some, I always look at the images and try to look for key strings and things that stood out. And that looked like they had an uh, environment variable, uh, you know, percent, auto path percent. And I'm thinking, I don't know if that's a normal Windows environment variable or not. And sure enough, it's not. But that also means they defined an environment variable. I don't know what that would look like from a data perspective, right? But obviously they had to define it so that when the, everything ran to establish persistence, it knew then what to replace, you know, if it's going to go in program files, app data, all that kind of stuff. Um, so that was something that kind of was interesting. And the other thing is, I don't feel like this is a fully developed malware. I feel like this is an early version of what it might become because it's not common for advanced malware to then drop itself in a test directory at test.exe, 
You know, it just seems like a, hey, we're just trying to validate this works. And then we should move on. Or time of the essence, depending on mission, objective, or whatever, they're like, hey, we don't have time to, like, you know, overdevelop this. We need just to make it to work and use it. Um, so there's two two thoughts there. But that kind of stood out as, like, an interesting nugget that kind of gets my brain, like, well, I wonder why they went so basic. Because if I was just dumping, you know, executables, for instance, in an environment that were rare, and I saw test.exe, I'd be like, well, I'm definitely going to check out what that is, right? That's not a normal exe. And even if it was some random developer, I'd, that should be easy validation. Um, so, yeah, those those are some things that, you know, stood out specifically on this one. But, yeah, it's really cool to see um, malware take this type of approach where it's it's taking advantage of different things based on what it can do, right? So. So on that last note that you mentioned, how, how scary is that that it's not fully developed? That we've got this multiple methods, multiple, you know, achieving multiple goals malware that could take yeah. some time to find artifacts that it's working or it's in your environment and then say, oh, but we're not done yet. Yeah, and sometimes I feel like, you know, I don't know who – I don't know if they didn't do like any attribution. They just talked about the malware, right? And, you know, it could be the same reason why like, hey, we don't want to disclose zero days because we're an advanced adversary that has them. And so we're going to give you the most basic version of this code because we're going to use it because we need it. But we're not going to disclose everything. I mean, it could be one of those things too. I'm, we're, I can go to the conspiracy theory of malware development, right? Um, but yeah, I mean, this this could be a piece of a bigger thing or something that can develop into something bigger um and with more capabilities so it's just something that it's really good to pay attention to the behaviors because regardless of what it develops into as long as you're able to understand some of the behaviors it wants to leverage that's how you go about identifying this you're never going to identify something advanced with just iocs um until it's already happened already you know landed already you know achieved it some level of success right because IOCs are kind of backwards facing, not forward facing. So, um, so yeah, that's kind of how I look at it. Yeah, or you find uh, the malicious hash, and you look for any, you look for anything that it did, and you can't find anything because it copied itself or it changed its hash, right? You right. say it was polymorphic, like, yeah, I don't know. So. Going to the last article I want to bring forth, and this one kind of, I mean, I was just more disappointed in this being an issue. But basically, I mean, it was reported in Hacker News, and I think, I think Cisco has their own thing they pushed out. But it's like, warning, unpatched Cisco zero-day vulnerability actively targeted in the wild. And I was really glad that you were joining me on this podcast, because I know you went to the route of getting your CCNA, and you've spent enough time in Cisco. But basically, this zero day allowed someone to create a user with level 15 admin privileges, which is basically full admin if you know Cisco devices. And they're exploiting something through the HTTP service. And one, I'm very disappointed that Cisco doesn't just ship that with that service disabled because no one really ever uses it that is actually a cert certified Cisco person to configure anything because you can't do everything through it. Um, and 
if you've been through CCNA or other Cisco training, like one of the first things they tell you when it comes to the hardening of the device is disabling that service. So like this should not be a big deal for majority of everybody. <laughs> and it just always blows my mind when I see these things. I'm like, oh, oh no, a zero day Cisco. That could be really bad. I'm like, HTTP service? Like, why is this a thing? Why is this a problem? It's great someone discovered it. It's, I'm sure there's people that have this enabled in shops that maybe the only way they know to configure it because they have no training at all was like, hey, I got a web GUI and I need to configure the device that way. That's cool. Cisco is a command line only configurable device in my opinion. Um, and so it's just, I, I don't know. It kind of just blew my mind a little bit. Now, granted, maybe I'm uh, you know looking at a very small purview of Cisco devices. Maybe there's like the more advanced things where you would use a GUI um more likely for sure so i could be wrong um, on that front but everyone that's gone through any training when it comes to most cisco anything it's if you're on the command line then disable that service um and i really think like i said that service should be disabled by default um for a majority of their devices so so yeah i don't know i was kind of i saw this i know you have a little bit of a background and you're at least aware of some of these things i was kind of curious your thoughts on this as well like do you think i'm wrong did you see what i'm saying or you know what do you think in general no i completely get it uh, first of all i love the disappointed dad um <laughs> tone that you're taking i'm not mad i'm just disappointed right. Right. um yeah the fact that i mean privilege escalation at its finest Right, getting that level 15 access and being able to do whatever you want. Um, it's the, I guess the one, or not the one good thing, because that's not the, that's not the right answer. Uh, but of course, I, you know, I always try to look for persistence or whatever the case may be. But they, they said that, um, that the, uh, sorry, the back door saved under the file path is not persistence, meaning it will not survive a device reboot. Mm -hmm. um, but the rogue privilege accounts that are created continue to remain active. Um, that's great, but I don't know how many people restart their their network devices. Oh, never. <laughs> yeah, uptime like year or two. <laughs> like, what's the threat of restarting that, right? And and when I say threat, I mean like a man, because um, I I believe I made this mistake um, when I was first learning uh, my C or learning how to handle with Cisco um, switches and routers mm -hmm. was that, um, oh, and I'm just going to try and remember this. Um, the save command. Oh, save like the commit versus, config. yeah. So I configured it. I took my time. I configured all these devices to talk. Um, and uh, my site lead at the time was like, all right, tomorrow we're going to do this. So shut everything down, and I shut everything down, came back the next day, no config file, right? Yeah. And I was like, man, that sucks. Because, I mean, it wasn't anything bad, because luckily it was test, it was all lab, it was all training. Mm -hmm. So there was no operational uh, downtime. You know, people were still t communicating on different means. But say you do have that problem in your environment, you're not aware of it that, hey, if we restart the switch or this router, that the configuration is going to go down and then we're going to have to reconfigure everything and, you know, you name it. That's a huge problem. Um, probably not the reason people are thinking about <laughs> restarting their network devices. But like you said, 
who's going to sit there and say, hey, we're going to have a network outage for X amount of time right? because we're going to restart this thing. And, oh, by the way, that's not going to save you because if they do have that privilege account, then they still have access to it. So, um, and what's funny is if you've got legacy, or not legacy, but if you have equipment that's old, sometimes it is just waiting for a restart so it can die, right? Because it's like, I can hold on, <laughs> but the second you restart me, that's like my last leg, right? And so, like, you can't sometimes afford to do that if that's your only, you know, call for that. Absolutely. Absolutely. No one wants to do that. Um, <laughs> and then, of course, the update at the end, it said threat actors have ex uh, actively exploited this to compromise and affect thousands of Cisco um, devices. And it's just... That's I mean, where I'm ashamed. This, I'm like, really? <laughs> yeah. Like, it's it. not only is it bad, but it's bad because it's being used. Uh, but no, I completely agree. This is just like a... I don't know. It, I, and I guess it's easy to say it's a easy, low-hanging fruit that should have been caught. You name it. Um, I've just never gone through any Cisco provided training or any training outside that teaches me how to use Cisco routing and switching. So let's be a little specific where they even even showed me the web GUI interface to configure these things. And that's why I struggle with why is it automatically enabled if it's not even trained on, right? Like I'd have to go out of my way to even learn it. And I'm sure it's more self-explanatory than, you know, the command line, but I don't know. That's I'm just frustrated by Cisco. I feel like this is their fault. I want to point fingers. Yeah. No, <laughs> I, I don't know. No, I've never used the GUI either. Right. Um, yeah. I mean, firewalls, I get it. Other devices like that, sure. Right. But yeah. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> this was a very confusing one. So yeah, I just want to bring that up because it was more like, a, hey, this is a thing and I'm just disappointed it's a thing. So, <laughs> so disappointed. But, um, so yeah, if you got no afterthoughts, I got a list of things to announce before we close out. Actually, a substantial list. Um, no, I'm, I'm good. I'm good. Cool. So, both Lee and I will be at the ISS conference in Cleveland at the IX Center. So, if you're going, uh, you can definitely find us there uh, in a number of ways. Lee will be doing training. I'll be doing a talk. Um, you'll be able to find us uh, just by searching through the Huova app. Um, and then we also will be doing uh, live podcast sessions Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday, um, which you can also find the same way. So we'll be basically talking to some folks and uh, trying to make it a little fun and, and see what kind of information we can kind of distill and share. So um, that should be a fun time. We're also, there's still going to be the Sands Fall Cyber Solutions Fest, October 25th through the 27th. I think I failed to mention the conference in Cleveland. It's the 23rd through the 27th. Um, but yeah, the SANS is the 25th through the 27th. It's a free three-day virtual event. Um, Cyborg will be sponsoring and attending that. Um, and then we also have the on-demand webinar episodes uh, by Lee. Um, you know, Lee's Pumpkin Spice Logs, Hunting for APTs. Uh, you can check that kind of stuff out on the Cyborg Security LinkedIn. Uh, look for that there. And then also upcoming in November, you'll see the Mastering the Hunt, Translating Intelligence to Action 
with Recorded Future. So uh, it's going to be November 8th uh, from 12 to 1 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. And it's basically about operationalizing threat intel into actionable objectives for threat hunting. Um, so that should be a really interesting one. You know, that's, I think, a big pivot point for threat hunting is how to use threat intelligence. Uh, so that should be a great talk. Um, I, I really look forward to it. Sorry to cut you off, but I really look yeah, forward to it because working from a SOC, going from where I was um, as an incident responder and a SOC analyst, uh, once I found logs and you know, fell in love with Sysmon, you know, my whole story, um, the question was, how do we elevate detections? How do we make detections better? And then how do we move on from detections? Um, you know, and that led into threat hunting. Um, I'm not going to say I was a pioneer or recognized it early or whatever. That's definitely not the case. But that was one of the biggest questions I have because we had, you know, a tip come in and that was great. But at the same time, I was like, oh, we have all these IOCs. Great. Still IOCs. How do we get better? And then we get to have this talk of how to operationalize Intel that's not just IOCs, how to get those artifacts, how to get those behaviors and extract them from something. And Recorded Future is really helping us out with that. So big thanks to them. Uh, and I I don't normally do self shameless plugs, but if you're gonna make a workshop at all this year, I think this would be the one. Cool. So with that, I want to thank everyone for joining our Out of the Woods Threat Hunting podcast today. Uh, looking forward to syncing back up next week, um, which I don't think I mentioned, but we have our live podcast next week on Thursday from, I think, 7 to 8.30 p.m. So check that out. Uh, that's a fun one. Um, and that will close out our top five threat hunting headlines for the week of October 16th, 2023. Happy hunting, everyone. Happy hunting. Great job, guys. A um, little bit of feedback for you, Lee. Yeah. I could I could tell you're using your uh, the Steel Series headset. Um, huh. Try and avoid muting using the headset because every time you do, I can hear the beep. Oh, really? Yeah. So every time you muted and unmuted yourself, I could hear the beep going off, and I know that beep very well. <laughs> well, Chris. I don't hear it. <laughs> it's not me. Uh, wow. it, I don't know. I don't know if both of you are using it, but I'm pretty sure it was you, Lee, because it was happening more when you. Well, I'm, I'm pretty yeah, sure it's happening it. exclusively so when you were talking. I don't it, but I don't. Oh, no, I don't me. hear his beep. That was definitely me. Okay. Yeah, so not a big deal, but just keep that in mind. At least when you're unmuting it, I hear the beep. I don't know if it's when you're muting it as well. It was hard to, to tell there, but um, definitely if you're muting it, sorry, unmuting it, I could hear that. Apologize for that. I'll definitely change that. Yeah, like I said, it's not a big deal man it's just it's one of those things that like you don't know because you're assuming like oh yeah i'm muted so and it's being played in my ears how would it be <laughs> right but because the mic is really sensitive that's why you end up hearing it other than that great job guys and uh yeah thank you Hope very we didn't much. Bum people out too much 
<laughs> I was so bad because I feel like when Subi was like, all right, he's like, sounds like he's exhausted. Like, all right. Thanks, guys. <laughs> I had to deal with this crap again. Half awake. <laughs> That's not true at all. I'm just, <laughs> I, I'm just waiting for lunch. Yeah. <laughs> um, right. One other thing, just as a, a heads up, again, this isn't a big deal. Um, probably try and avoid talking about like current political events, like the whole hospital thing. Um, oh, we hit obviously you're hard. No, no, no. Like normally it's fine. Right. But like when, when you started going off tangent there a bit, um, try and avoid giving personal opinion on stuff like that. Um, it's not that it isn't true. It's just that from a, a company perspective, you don't necessarily know where that's going to, where that can always go. Yeah. Is there a way we could just edit that out? Um, I'll see what Jordan can do. I mean, again, it's not the end of the world. It's, it's a pretty tame opinion to have like, Oh yeah. Like people who, who go after hospitals are really bad people. Right. Especially in a war zone. <laughs> oh yeah. I don't, like, I don't think you're going to get a whole lot of pushback. It's more just like moving forward. If you have, like, you never know where those things end up. Right. And you never know who's taking it and how they're taking it and what have you. So, and especially around some of the current events that are going on now, probably best to just like not have an opinion in my personal opinion. All right. But yeah, don't, don't fret about it. Don't worry about it. Like I said, it's a pretty tame opinion. It was more just as something to think about moving forward. Mm -hmm. Good. Cool. All right, guys. Well, thanks again. And uh, I'm going to lunch. Yeah, Enjoy. Later, guys. Take it easy.